Uh, there are a number of things that I know how to change. Pretty limited number of things. I know how to change a light bulb. I do know how to do that. I know how to change a tire up to a certain point. We, we had a, a member of uh, Wicker Park that uh, had a flat right after service. I could stand there and tell everyone kind of how to change it. So intellectually, I knew how to change a tire, and I did help a little bit, although I was coming here to preach, so they insisted that I not get dirty while I was in the process of changing the tire. So, but I, I do know conceptually how to change a tire. Um, I know how to change a diaper. That's a really important thing to know as a dad. Um, those of you who, you know, will have the honor and experience of that, it's a really important skill that you need to know how to do. There is a, there's a certain way in which you need to learn how to change a diaper. Um, it's best that you just experience it when, when you have your own child. Uh, it's not something you really practice on other people. That would be a little weird, but it is a skill that you need to have, knowing how to change a diaper. Um, there are a number of things that I know how to change. There's, there's a number of things that I, I do not know how to change. A number of things I, I don't know how to change. Um, I don't know how to change the fact that I'm getting older. That I can't change, right? I know Lori and I, uh, this weekend, yesterday, celebrated our 28th, 28th wedding anniversary. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 28 years. Yeah. Um, it just means that we're old now. That's what that means, 28 years. So, uh, But I can't, we can't change the fact that we're growing older. That's just a... It's just a fact, right? I, I can't really change the fact that I'm losing my hair. There's probably something I could do about it, but it would be really expensive to take care of. But I can't change the fact that I'm getting older. I, I can't change the fact that my daughter is getting married in two weeks, less than two weeks, actually. Um, I can't change that fact. As much as I would like to change that, right, and postpone her getting married. I like the guy. It's not him, right? It's just that my little girl's getting married, right? So I'd rather delay that for, I don't know, five, seven, ten years, something like that. But I can't change the fact that she's going to get married, right? I'm participating in it. I'm ready to go. I think it's our, my only daughter, so I'm trying to prepare my heart for it. But I can't change the fact that she's going to get married and she wants to marry this guy. I don't get it. So, but uh, there's, there's some things I just can't change, right? There's things that I can't change. I think there's some fundamental um, parts of us that have some things that we really want to change. There's things that we know about ourselves that we can look kind of in the deep parts of our hearts and our minds and kind of look at ourselves and look at ourselves in the mirror and go, yeah, there's, there's definitely some things I want to change about who I am. And I, I'm not talking just about physical stuff, right? Like, I, I know that I'm um, a few pounds overweight, and I'd like to change it about myself. I could look at the mirror and say, yeah, I, I could work out, I could eat better, I, could, I know I could do all those things if I really wanted to, but it's, it's the things that I look at beyond just my physical appearance and go, I know that there's some things that I want to change. When I look down into the deep parts of my heart and my mind, um, there are some major things about me that I, I know that God is in the business of changing. And most of us probably could look at some of the darkness that we have in our lives and go, I know this is not, that I am not a completed task. That God is in the process of perfecting me. It's called glorification. It's taking me from where I am, from the point of salvation, to sanctifying me, right? So he sanctifies, he changes us over time to become more, to look more and more like the person of Jesus until the final day when we experience what's called glorification, which means when we're in the presence of Jesus, we are changed completely. 
Like everything is different about us. We are now in a perfected state. And I don't know what that looks like exactly because it's hard for me to imagine myself in a perfected state of glorification. But that's the work that God is doing. And while we're here on this earth, he's sanctifying. He's bringing us through a process of change in our hearts. And so when you think about yourselves, there's probably things that you wish that you could change about yourself. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's addiction that you just can't shake Perhaps it's um, some anxiety that you just are riddled with, or perhaps um, some unforgiveness that you just can't be unhindered, or perhaps it's just being unloving towards others. You, you know that that's a part of you. You're know, like, I, I really want to love my friends, and I really want to love my neighbors. I want to love the people around me better, but I just know that there's a part of me that just just needs to be changed in that. I need to become a more loving person. Maybe it's selfishness or greed or, or gossip or, or just perhaps a lack of spiritual disciplines that you say, I just really want to really change that part about me. I want to be more disciplined. I want to be in the presence of Jesus. I, I want to I be able to read my Bible and pray and just, and just have this intimacy with the Lord. So maybe there's, there's probably a multitude of things that you could change about yourself. So, so let me just ask you this question. What is it about you that you would really like to change? Is there something about you that you really want to have changed, that, that if that one thing changed, it would transform your life? That one thing, that if you could change that, it could transform your life. It's kind of hard to think about that a little bit. Sometimes we have blind spots and we don't always see what those things are. So let me, let me encourage you, here's, just, here's one really practical application um, for tonight that I think could help you as we kind of think through this passage of Scripture. This was actually an assignment that a spiritual mentor gave to me just a couple of years ago, because uh, I was kind of working through um, just some spiritual depression and, and working through some things and really wanted to see some change in my life. And so he gave me this one assignment that I thought was really helpful. And what he did is he asked me to go to Lori, my wife, and he said, I want you to ask her, if you could change one thing about me, what would it be? Very vulnerable thing to do, right? To go to your spouse or go to your best friend or to your roommate or someone close to you and just ask them that question. If there was one thing that you could change about me, what would it be? I'm not going to tell you what she told me, but it was deeply impactful in my life deeply impactful. And when she said it, I knew immediately, yes, this is something that needs to change in me. And, uh, and so I've been working, and, and I still have not perfected that by any means. It is still an act of change and sanctification that God is doing in my life to, to um, make me to, to look more and more like Jesus in that particular area of my life. But, but if, if you're having a hard time thinking about what is that, what is one thing, and some of you are like, oh my gosh, well, I have a list of things. I have a whole long list of things that I want to change. But, but let's just think just of one thing. And if you're having trouble, do that assignment this week. Just go to someone really close to you. Maybe it's a, a roommate or a spouse or boyfriend, girlfriend, something like that. Um, maybe not your parents, I don't know. But anyway, but ask them that question. If there's one thing you could change about me, well, what would that be? So as you're thinking about that, that one thing that could, if that thing changed, could transform your life, here's the next question I want to ask you is, how far would you go, how far would you go 
for that to, to be a reality? How far would you be willing to go to really make that change? I'll be honest, there are some days, there are some days in my life where the things that I want changed, I will go the whole distance for. Like, I, I'll, I'll feel the weight and the pressure of those things, and I'll say, oh my word, I want to change that so badly that I would do almost anything for that to change. But there's other days, right, that I get up and I, I was like, oh my gosh, it's so much work. Like, I don't think I, I, don't think I want to change that badly, right? I mean, it feels like my, my workout regimen, right, that I have. Like, I know I'm supposed to get up three days a week, that's the minimum, three days a week, and I have my workout regimen I'm supposed to do. But every single morning I get up, I'm like, I don't want to do that. There's no way I'm going to get up and do that, right? Burpees and planks and all that kind of stuff. Like, that does not sound like a good start to my morning, right? So there are days where I, I wake up and I'm enthused and I'm ready to go and I'm ready to, to, to be transformed in that particular area that God wants to do the deep work in my life. And then there's other days that I'm just like, I can't do it today. I'm just too tired. But it's amazing how persistent the Holy Spirit is in pursuing us towards change. That he doesn't back off. The Holy Spirit continues to create a hunger within us to say he wants us to change. He's, he's pursuing us. He's prompting us for the kind of deep change that happens in our life. He's persistent in spurring us on towards transformation, which is a really good thing. That God puts those deep hungers in our lives to pursue that. It's a hunger that says that my life is not yet finished, that it is not as it should be, that my life is broken and it's in need of mending, that I'm sinful and I'm in need of saving every single day. When you're desperate for change, you must do whatever it takes to get to Jesus. You must do whatever it takes to get to Jesus. Today's passage is a story of one woman's desperation for change. We find it in Luke chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to look at that passage, just eight very short verses, um, which Matthew just read to us. Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 48. It says, Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Now, we're not, we're not going to center uh, our time today around this, uh, this story of Jairus, uh, but it too is a remarkable story of desperation. Uh, he's a synagogue leader um, who is pleading with Jesus. He's He's down at Jesus' feet, pleading for the life of his young daughter of 12. Um, a religious leader of this particular stature would never have done this, especially to a Jewish rabbi like Jesus. So the desperation that we see in Jairus is amazing because he's willing to put himself in, in such a place of humility. And again, grown men would have never have done this, but this man is desperate. And so this is, this is where we see uh, this story transition because Jesus is responding out of compassion to the desperation of this father. And so now he's on his way to heal the daughter of Jairus. 
And this is where we meet the woman in the story. It's while Jesus is on his way. And so we see here in, uh, in verse 42, it says, as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subjected to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. Now, the Gospel of Mark um, adds a, a little bit more detail. It says, it's, it's a little bit more blunt. It says that she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but grew worse. So there's a, several important details for us to look at when we're looking at this passage of Scripture. The first one is this, and that is that she had an issue of blood. This is really a polite way of saying that she had an uncontrollable menstrual flow. One pathologist strongly suspected that she had significant iron deficiency and likely an iron deficiency anemia, which is common in women for their childbearing years. So what are, what are the effects of this kind of blood issue? Well, one is loss of blood all the time, loss of strength. There's a, da- a real danger of death. There are severe physical effects. It also meant that she was not only sick and in pain and unable to have children, but she was ceremonial, un- ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. There you go. That's a hard word to say altogether. Ceremonially unclean. Which meant that she was not allowed to be touched. Not allowed to be touched. She couldn't go to public worship, and she really should not be in crowds. Leviticus 15, starting in verse 19, says, if any woman has an issue of blood like this, she is ceremonially unclean. So a a woman's monthly cycle was used by God as an illustration of the need to be purified. That's that's why this was an Old Testament law that we find in Leviticus. It was a way to remind the people that they needed purification. And so a woman was considered, uh, was, uh, considered during this time unclean uh, as sort of like a symbol of spiritual uncleanliness of the heart. But this woman would never be able to be anything but ceremonially unclean, primarily because it went on for 12 years. Twelve years. It's a long time, twelve years. In twelve years, no one hugged her, no one touched her, no one laid a hand on her to pray for her. This was an incredibly lonely place for this woman to be. Socially, um, she was out. Even with within her own immediate family. This is an incredibly sad woman. The physical effects, the social effects, and then even worse, the spiritual effects. She couldn't go to synagogue. She would never be taught the Word of God. She couldn't go to worship. She couldn't go to learn. She couldn't hear God, the Word of God being read. Like, all those scrolls would have been locked up in the synagogue, and she would never have access for 12 years. 12 years. And the Luke tells us that she was incurable. So Luke, um, the gospel writer, was a physician. 
who's a doctor. And that's really his judgment. He said uh, that she spent all of her money trying um, to get better during various doctors to find any cure. In fact, um, there's, uh, there's uh, numerous writings in Talmud uh, talking about uh, the different ways in which this, uh, which is a Jewish writing, talking about ways in which uh, uh, people would go about trying to find a cure for this particular ailment. It would have been expensive. She would have tried everything from, from the craziest of medicine to every quack that she could find just to find some kind of relief. Twelve years long, she spent all of her money. She's exhausted every resource she's had. She's gone to everyone that she can find, and there is no cure in sight. She is beyond anything that anyone can do. She is poor, and she is helpless. Can you imagine the kind of desperation after 12 years? Actually, I think that a lot of us can like not, not with this particular ailment, but I, I think a lot of us can, can feel the weight of that in our own lives, the desperation of maybe 12 years. And maybe some of you have been carrying an ailment or anxiety or something for 12 years or longer that you just, you feel the weight every single day and you are so desperate for change. I had a good friend, um, have a good friend, who's an alcoholic. Um, and um, I spent many days and nights with him, um, just sitting with him in anguish. Whether I was going to another court date for another DUI with him, or driving him because he had a suspended license, or um, sitting with him after another failed job. I mean, just the complete humiliation um, that he endured being an alcoholic. Uh, he was a Wheaton grad student. And he confessed to me one day that there was not one paper that he wrote for his grad school that he didn't do while he was drunk. Desperation. Desperation and feeling the weight and the agony of that. He would have done anything to change. Anything to change. Verse 44 says then, in her desperation, she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak and immediately her bleeding stopped. This is, this is fascinating. I love this particular passage. Matthew indicates that she had this premeditated act um, recording that she was saying to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will get well. She's thinking about this. If I can just touch his garment, I will be well. Mark adds this small detail saying, after hearing about Jesus, okay, so she's heard about him. I don't know if she's heard it from friends. Jesus has been traveling and he's been healing others, been preaching the gospel, the good news. And so hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. 
Mark explains that the woman is reasoning. It says, for she thought, saying to herself again and again, if I just touch his garment, I will be well. Can you imagine her thinking, just repeating to herself, if I just get close to Jesus, if I can just get close to Jesus, if I can just get close enough to touch him, I'm going to be well. It says that she touched or Actually, the word here is clung to the edge of his cloak. So, there's actually a little detail, and I brought a little um, uh, show and tell today. So, uh, this is Jewish prayer shawl. Um, it's a legit one. Lori bought this for me, I don't know, a number of years ago for Christmas. I thought it was really cool, so she got it for me. Um, so, it's a Jewish prayer shawl. Um, and uh, so, when when Mark records, well, actually all the Gospels record that, um, that she um, came up behind him and, and clung or grabbed his, the edge of his cloak, the, the actual um, language that's used here was that she, she, um, she grabbed the tzitzi of his cloak, which is um, actually these fringes on his prayer shawl. So Jesus would have won these. He was a Jewish rabbi, and all good Jews in Jesus' day would have wore something. It would have been probably not quite this elaborate. Mine is really shiny and nice, but um, it would have been really similar to this in that um, every, and this is, you find this in uh, two passages, actually. You find it in in Numbers 15, and you find it again in Deuteronomy uh, 22, where it gives uh, instructions for um, wearing um, this this, uh, prayer shawl. And uh, gives instructions for how these are to be made, and, and that you are to attach the tzitzi to the edge of your cloak. And so, I don't know if you can see this. I'll pass it around because it is show and tell, right? Um, if you can see the edge of it here, there's actually, um, it's tied in the bottom. So, these are the tzitzi, and uh, you have uh, five knots, um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So, you have the Torah that's defined here in the five knots. And then you have eight cords. There's supposed to be a cord that is blue that's kind of the color of this. Um, but they don't make that color anymore, or they don't have that color anymore. Actually, in Jesus' day, it would have come some really rare snails that are found in the Sea of Galilee. And it was incredibly, it was like a purple, bluish purple. It's so incredibly expensive. It's like $36,000 equivalent to like an ounce of the blue that it would have taken to put in one of these strands. Okay, so it's incredibly expensive, and they don't really make it anymore. Um, and so that would have been a blue, they would have put a blue cord in there. Um, and so, uh, and it's, so it's wound, so you've got five knots, and then it's wound four times, uh, which is the, the four letters of the Mishnah, and then, uh, then you've got it wrapped, and so each one of these, you, you add up um, all, the, all the letters from uh, the words of the Torah, the four letters of the Mishnah, the eight chords, and then you've got um, the three. I'm trying to remember what three is. I'll think of it in a second. Anyway, you add it all up, and there's 600, 613 to be exact, 613 strands that are woven here, which is, anybody guess? Any uh, Old Testament scholars? 613 is what? Number of commandments. Yeah, it's the number of commandments. So, this was specifically designed so that you could remember, it was to remind you of um, the 613 commandments from, um, from the law of Moses, all right? So, that's why you have those tied at the bottom, the tzitzit tied at the 
edge of your garment. And so it's a constant reminder to you of uh, the commandments of the Lord. Constant reminder. So isn't it ironic then that a woman with a blood disorder that spelled out very clearly in the law of Moses that says she is not to be around people, she is not to touch anybody, in this moment she grabs and clings to the tzitzit on Jesus' prayer shawl. If only I can. If only I can just touch the hem of his garment, I know I can be healed. What does your desperation look like? What does your desperation, when you know that God wants to do a change in your life, he wants to transform something so deep in you, what does desperation look like for you? At what length will you go to be changed? Maybe it sounds like the Psalm of David. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me to the way of everlasting. She knew his power. And she believed in it. If only she could grasp his garment, she could get well. She kept saying it and kept saying it, kept saying it over and over and over again, just to help reinforce this enormous breach of the law that she's going to now undertake. I just need to get a hold of it. She believed. This was obvious. She believed that there was so much power flowing out of him that if she just got in the space and she could just touch his garment, that was going to be enough to be healed. So she's trying to be as quiet as she can, right? She's sneaking through the crowd. I, don't, I mean, I could just imagine her, right? She's in a place where she should not be, in a crowded place. And she's trying to just maneuver her way just enough so that she can just catch the hem, just to grab and to cling on just, just for a moment. She's maneuvering herself through, trying to be as visible as she can. The natural embarrassment that she would have felt, right? If anyone ever saw her or caught her in that moment, the fear of public shame. And so now she comes in this secretive way just to grab on and cling on to Jesus just for a moment. And then Jesus' response in verse 45, who touched me? Who touched me, Jesus asked. And when they all denied it, right, he's looking around and everyone said, no, 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 not me. I didn't do it. I didn't touch you. I didn't touch him, right? And Peter said, master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. This is probably the, you know, overstatement of the year, right? From Peter, like, hey, Jesus, like, everybody's touching you, right? Who's not touching you? We're in a crowded place. Everybody's trying to get a piece of you. Everyone's here trying to get at you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. Someone touched me. I know the power has gone out from me. 
This is, this is fascinating. This is just a fascinating statement from Jesus. We don't find this anywhere else. Such a fascinating statement. I know that the power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. And in the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. We need to know this, that the power of God is not impersonal. It is not some impersonal force of power that's just flowing out of him. He is fully aware of his action in this place. He's not asking because he doesn't know. It's Jesus. He knows exactly what's happened here. He knows that the power has left him. He knows where it's gone. The power of God is not impersonal. We don't have a Savior who needs personal space. He invites you to invade every part of who he is. That's the kind of God that we serve. In desperation, he invites us to come. And Jesus meets us there in our desperate need of change. Mark records that Jesus looked around, that Jesus was glancing around, and presumably his eyes met hers to see, to catch sight of the woman who had done this. Can you imagine being that woman in that moment? Jesus kind of scanning the crowd, and he catches her eye just for that moment, and then she just knows it's over. Like, I, he knows, right? He knows it's me. And so here she comes stepping forward, and she's so ashamed, embarrassed, She comes trembling and falls at his feet in the presence of all those people. Like everyone's looking, this huge crowd, and everyone's looking at her in this moment. And then Jesus' response is remarkable. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Such tenderness. Jesus calling her daughter. This is the only woman that Jesus ever calls this in throughout Scripture. Daughter. He referred to her by name, and by doing that, it expresses the most intimate, tender relationship. The girl nobody wanted to touch now is ultimately adopted by her family father. The girl no one wanted to touch is embraced by the strongest and most tender arms in the universe. It's remarkable. He calls her daughter. It's such a contrast to um, what we've seen in the story of Jairus. Remember, we have a father who's coming for his daughter. He's begging for the life of his daughter. We know that she's 12 years old. We know his name. Like, we know a lot of details about Jairus, and we know nothing about her. She is a nameless woman. And in this moment, Jesus calls her the most tender thing that he could have called anyone. He calls her daughter. It's remarkable. The loving kindness of Jesus and our place of desperation. Her faith is active. It's not passive here. For 12 years, this woman has aggressively sought to cure her illness. She's been to every quack. She's been to every doctor that she could find. She's tried every cure that her friends suggested. No matter how troublesome or distasteful, she's spent every dime of her money. 
She was actively doing everything she could to find a remedy, and she could not quit until she obtained the cure that she was after. She was not put off by the large crowd. She was not bothered by the fact that she would make everyone that she touched unclean. She elbowed her way through. She didn't worry about the fact that Jairus' daughter was dying, that Jesus was hurrying to this life-and-death kind of situation. She persisted with her goal. Faith is not passive. Faith is a battle that we fight. When we believe that Jesus can change us, it's not something that we can do to sit back and just be passive about. We have to understand that faith is something that's active. Our belief that Jesus can change us is a battle that we face every single day. Because you will get up tomorrow and you'll say, I don't think I can ever change from this. I don't think I can ever be cured from this. I don't think God can ever take this away from me. It is a battle that you will face every single day. And it's not against flesh and blood. It is against spiritual principalities. It is against the things that you cannot see in this world. It is only a battle that the Holy Spirit can do in dwelling in your own life. It's not something that you can do on your own. It's not something you can fix. Like this woman, she's battled for 12 years trying to find every single thing that she can do to fix herself. The fact is, is that she needed the power of Christ to fix her. It was the only healing that she could obtain. She did anything and everything she possibly could. Her faith was not passive. It's not something she just sat on the couch and said, I'm just going to wait for the day. No, her faith was active. It was a battle. I'm going to do everything I can fight my way to Jesus. What amazing, desperate faith in Jesus that this woman had. But what an even more amazing Savior we have who meets us in our desperation. He doesn't turn us away, but instead says, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. says, your faith has healed you. See, faith is not just about healing her body, but also is the kind of faith that saved her soul. This is a really interesting way in which Jesus phrases this. He says, your faith has healed you, but it's not just about her physical healing. The word here is a common word used for salvation. Your faith has saved you. It's healed you, your body but it also has saved you. It's the same kind of faith that we battle for every single day to know that God is at work in us through the power of the Holy Spirit to change us and to save us. There's a few points here of practical application that I want to give to you today. The first one is this, and that is that there is no one who is too messed up or too unclean or too insignificant to get Jesus' attention. And conversely, there is no one that's too good or too powerful that doesn't need him desperately. See, that's why I love this story. You have the story of Jairus who had everything. He was a religious leader. He had everything he could ever wanted. And he is just as desperate for Jesus as this woman who's been suffering for 12 years. I don't care who you are. If you want deep change, if you want God to really transform your heart and mind and to become more and more like Jesus, we need to be desperate for what only Jesus can do in our life. Do you really want to change? 
Jesus will meet you in that place of desperation. He will meet you there. Some people don't come to Jesus because of unbelief. Um, they don't believe that God can love them. And some people come, uh, won't come because of pride, believing that they don't need him. Both of those things will keep you away from his love and his healing. Do you really want to change? Then don't you let anything get in the way of getting to Jesus. Let anything get in your way. And the last application is this. You don't get the power of Jesus by just sitting here, right? It's not by just showing up here and going, well, I'm in church, right? So that's, that's where it's at, right? No, you get it by throwing yourself at the feet of Jesus and surrendering yourself fully to him and admitting that there are things that are hopeless in the face without him. You throw yourself at the feet of Jesus like this woman you throw yourself at the feet of it like Jairus, and you say, God, there is nothing I can do to save myself. There is nothing that I can do to change my own condition. There is nothing that I can do to transform my own heart. God, would you do that work in me? We admit and we confess to him that we are hopeless and helpless without him. It's where it begins, and that's where it ends. We throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus, and we confess today, Lord, I can't change without you. I can't do it. Probably one of the most um, single shocking things about this story is what happened when um, this woman touched Jesus. Usually when an unclean thing touches a clean thing, that clean thing becomes unclean, right? So like, um, if I sneeze in my hand, which I don't, I've learned to sneeze in my, in my, you know, my elbow, I've learned to do that, right? But if I sneeze in my hand and then I go and I shake Matthew's hand, right, not good, right? Matthew would be very upset about that because that's how you transfer, like, diseases and colds, right? 80% of, trans- of, of diseases are transferred by touch, right? So most of the time, in, in this regular life, right, if I shake Matthew's hand, I'm transferring what I have over to him. So, which is why when I go downtown to the office, and I, because I take the CTA every day to get down there, like, first thing I do is I wash my hands, right? Because I'm like, I have no idea who's touched those handles and those poles and those seats and all that kind of stuff. Like, I'm, yeah, it's kind of gross. Probably better not to think about it. But the thing is, is like when, when something is unclean and it touches something clean, the thing that's clean becomes unclean. That's the way the world works. That's not the way it works with Jesus. That is not the way it worked in this story, is it? In this case, when the unclean thing touches the clean thing, he doesn't become unclean or defiled. She becomes clean and well. The unclean thing touches the clean thing, and instead of the clean thing becoming unclean, the unclean thing becomes clean. That's because the ministry of Jesus is one of substitution. This is the heart of the gospel. On the cross, he took on all of our defilement. On the cross, he took our sin and our sorrow, our defilement, our condemnation went on him, so his healing and salvation 
could flow onto us. He became sin so that we became his righteousness. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. So we are unclean people that need change so desperately. In normal life, if you touch something that's clean, it becomes defiled. But in Jesus' ministry and his life, his death and his resurrection, it communicated something completely opposite. It communicated when we go to him, he doesn't push us away and say, away from a clean, unclean person, away from me, someone who's sinful or needs desperate need of change and pushes away. No, what he does is he brings us near to him. He calls us as sons and as daughters and embraces all of us who are just feel so unworthy. But his work on the cross, the gospel, what it does is it provides for us such great news, such good news, and that he brings us near and brings salvation to us. He takes something very unclean about who we are and he purifies us and makes us clean. That is good news for all of us. Let's pray together.